that we are heirs, Lord. It's just um, a lot to comprehend the gift that you have given to us, Lord. And I just pray that our hearts will be open to hear what you have from your word for us today through Daniel, Lord. And thank you so much. In the name of Jesus, amen. Good morning, church. It's good to sing together, isn't it? Uh, let me invite you, if you haven't already, to open your Bibles to Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. My name is Daniel. I have the privilege of preaching this morning. I'm excited to preach, if I can catch my breath a little bit. I hope you're excited to hear the word being preached. If you got your schedule mixed up and you were off on your rotation and you thought Will was going to be preaching this morning, I'm sorry. Uh, you stuck with me. This is the 10th week that we've been journeying through uh, the book of Galatians. We've got 16 weeks, and we're, we're almost, we're more than halfway in. And because uh, God's Word is so rich, and Galatians is especially rich, we have broken up Galatians into 16 parts. And primarily, we've done this using the guide of the ESV Bible, uh, with those, those title headings, those section headings, as you see there. This section is titled, Sons and Heirs, in the ESV, and it goes from chapter 4, uh, verse 1 through verse 7. But other Bibles, if you have a different translation of the Bible in your hand, you might have this section broken up in a different place. Like the, King, the New King James Version starts sons and heirs in verse 26. The CSB starts in verse 27. The NIV starts in verse 23. And, and I bring all this up to say because different translations uh, have different opinions on where Paul's sons and heirs kind of point our transition comes from, which by the way, those, those section headings are not part of the original manuscripts. Those were added later by translators to kind of serve as a reference and a guide for readers. But the point in bringing all of this up is to say that Paul's arguments flow together in, in these two chapters. Chapters three and four is, is Paul's argument that flows together based on his thesis that he said in chapter two, verses 15 through 21. And although different translators and commentators may differ on where this section begins or not, most of them are clear that Paul's main message, his central point, his thesis is found in Galatians 2, verses 16 through 21, which is essentially that justification, meaning right standing and acceptance with God, is not by works. It's by faith and through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the thesis. And then from this, from this uh, thesis, he builds out his argument and defends it in chapters three and four, right? So if you've been studying through Galatians with us, you know that the Galatians were being led astray. They were being deceived by false teachers who came in after Paul and said that following the law was necessary to be made right with God. Meaning circumcision and observance of the Mosaic law, you had to do those to be accepted, to be counted righteous. And the message that Paul preached, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, was being distorted. So Paul wrote to defend his argument and that's what he does in verses three, in chapters three and four. So chapter three, he says, uh, you didn't receive the spirit by works of the law. You received it simply by hearing with faith. Then he goes on to Abraham, the man of faith, to prove his thesis. He says, Abraham was counted righteous, was, was justified by faith. Then he continues in chapter three, and he says, all those who rely upon the works of the law are under a curse. And Jesus became the curse for us. He took our curse. So don't go back to the law. Then last week, Nathan preached Galatians 3, verses 15 through 29, which Paul's argument was that the law given to Moses did not contradict the promise given to Abraham. 
In fact, what the law did was make faith and trust in the promise given to Abraham even more urgent and necessary. The law given to Moses actually makes it more urgent because the promise could only be be fulfilled in Christ. So Paul's point here is that the law should drive us to Christ, not away from him. The point is that the law was not contrary to the promise of God. It was like that extra filter that was supposed to narrow the spotlight even more clearly on Jesus Christ. That was the purpose of the law. And and up to this point, then Paul uses three kind of images or illustrations proving the purpose that the law served uh, before the coming of Jesus. Number one, he uses the image of a prison. Paul writes that when we were under the law, we were held captive, imprisoned until the coming faith would be Revealed. He says that scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ might be given. The second image he uses is the image of a guardian. Now, the law was the guardian. Other translations might use the word tutor. This was a servant or a person or a slave who took a young pupil for instruction and protected him until he was, came of age. The, the guardian was responsible for the child's training, especially for pointing out and punishing misbehavior. So, Like a guardian, the law pointed out sin and punished it. And then when we get into chapter 4, Paul uses this illustration of a guardian, uh, of a child under guardians and managers. And your Bible might say guardians and stewards. So this is where we pick pick up, excuse me, uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. Everyone with me so far? Ready to dive in? (laughs) Thank you, Christian. So uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I mean that the heir, which is another way of saying, think of it this way, or now I say, or what I'm saying is this, the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, although in our English Bibles, that that word guardian in verse two uh, is, is the same word that's used in verse 24 in the original language, in the Greek, there's actually two different words that are being used there. One, uh, as referred to earlier in chapter 3, is, is more of the uh, moral caretaker. The second is, is more of a legal guardian. Does that make sense? So one would be more of the, the moral caretaker, one would be more of the legal guardian, and the manager or the trustee, the guardian in this sense, was the one who was responsible for the heir's needs until the heir came of age. So what Paul seems to have in mind in using this illustration is the picture of a young boy who was heir to a great estate. And one day will all be his. It will be his by a promise. But he has not experienced it yet because he is still a child. So in this sense, the young boy, as he's not of age, is under trustees and managers who control him and his property. And in this sense, the the heir is no different than a slave. Does that make sense? That's what Paul is is teaching here and, and using this illustration, the child is under the same authority and in the same legal condition and situation as a slave would be. But notice that phrase uh, in verse 2, until the date set by his father. Because what Paul is doing in using this illustration is he's showing the Galatians that all of this, the Mosaic law, is, and the fact that it's under a, a guardian, Paul is highlighting this is all under God's control that all of this was the plan of God. He had everything in control in creating and implementing the Mosaic law. And based on this phrase, until the date set by his father, keep that in mind as we continue going through the passage. It says in verse three, 
In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, if, if your Bible is like mine, you have a little footnote there by the elementary principles. And down at the bottom, it says it might refer to elemental spirits. Now, in my study, there wasn't a lot of consensus on what this might mean. It seems like it's a junk drawer term, meaning you were enslaved. That's Paul's point. Now, for the, the Jews, they were enslaved to the law. For the Gentiles, they would be enslaved to the, the pagan principles and the pagan religions and the elemental spirits. It could be referring to demons or evil spirits. It would be the pagan religions that the Gentiles followed. And again, the point of bringing all of this up is that whether you were a Jew or a Greek, you were enslaved. But there was a date coming that was set by the Father. There was a time when the captive would be set free, when the heir would come of age. The date set by the Father would be realized. And that's what Paul gets at in verse 4. When the fullness of time had come. Which is another way of saying when the set time had fully come. It came to perfection, completion. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those that were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This ties into what Paul wrote earlier in chapter 3, verse 13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. He was born under the law, born of a woman, to redeem those who were under the law. This, this phrase implies that Jesus kept the whole law perfectly. He was the only one who could. And in this sense, Jesus gives us what we don't deserve, and he takes what we deserve. So Jesus takes curse, judgment, wrath, we get what he deserves, sonship, status, righteousness, acceptance. And then in this kind of short, compact gospel a summary, he then reminds the Galatians of who they are. But you are sons because you are sons. Reminding them of the Holy Spirit that's sent into their hearts. He says, the Holy Spirit has sent the Son, the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And this is significant that he uses the word Abba because this is an Aramaic term that means Father. And it's the same word that Jesus used in praying to his Father. So the, the special relationship that Jesus had with his Father, this intimacy and right relationship and, and unity, communion that he had with his Father, Gentiles have that they are sons. That's significant that Paul uses that word Abba, Father. It's, a, it's an intimate, we have a relationship now with God as Father. And because now we are sons, we use this language of Abba, Father. And, and this isn't the language of slaves. This is the language of a son. And if we are a son, then we are an heir. And that's another glorious truth. I think you could preach a whole sermon series on what it means to be an heir. I mean, think about what that means, that Paul's saying we're heirs. What does God own? Everything. So our inheritance, it's pretty sweet. There's no kind of, we're infinitely rich and, and have everything, all that we could need in God. So in, the, in this short little passage, Paul is summarizing the gospel. He's reminding them they were, they were under slavery. He's telling them that you were sons, reminding them of the truth. And, and this is what the text says, right? That first question of the five that we've been seeking to answer each week. The text says that we were enslaved, but there was a date that came that was set by the Father where God sent Jesus to redeem the Galatians from slavery. 
so that they might receive adoption as sons, and they're no longer slaves, but they're sons, and if sons, then they're heirs. But let's dive into what that, what that means. What does it mean to be a son? Well, I think Paul argues that anyone who tries to be justified before God, to find acceptance with God, or to be made right with God by works or by the flesh, by their own efforts apart from the Spirit and apart from faith, is a slave. So in a very real sense here, Paul is saying not everyone in the world is a child of God. There are slaves and there are sons. And I think there's two concepts and two ideas that are important to explore in in helping us understand what the text means. And firstly is how we become sons. And secondly, what it means to be a son. Okay, Those are two things I want to dive deeper into in this passage to, to help us understand what the text means. Number one, firstly, how we become sons. Notice how much Paul highlights the initiation, the planning, and the work of God. Did you notice that as we were working through the text? When the fullness of time had come, which that should tie us back to verse 2, until the date set by his father, meaning God is in control of time. He was the one who orchestrated this and planned this. This was all according to his sovereignty and providence and will. Notice who is the one who sends the son? God the Father. Notice the one who sends the Spirit. God. Notice the one through whom we are made heirs. God. Right? Remember, Paul was countering the claims of the false teachers in Galatia who were making it about us, our works. And notice how Paul is countering that. You don't do anything. God planned it. He sent his son. He sent his spirit. And he made you an heir. You want to boast in something? You boast in God. Not in your works, not in what you did. Our, our justification, our salvation, our redemption, our indwelling of the Spirit does not happen by our merit, our working hard, our earning it. It happens through God, His sovereign initiating acts of grace and mercy. That's, that's even driven home further by the word receive. Notice, He didn't say you earned adoption as sons, you receive. It's a gift. It's not earned or or worked for. It's not as though we were in some sort of spiritual orphanage and we set out our resumes before God and we vied and, and worked and said, I'm most deserving than this chump. No. We were adopted by God the Father. We receive adoption. It's not earned. It's it's by grace, and we receive it as a gift. Now, when we think of adoption, we might think of you know a young baby or a young child. But in the Greco-Roman context, adoption was more common actually in grown men. And usually slaves or servants would be adopted because the the father did not have an an heir. And because in those times, a a woman could not be a son or a legal heir, they could not inherit property. A man, if he did not have a son, had to adopt a a full-grown man essentially to be the son. So what Paul is using in the sense of of sons, and I I think it's important that we use that word sons and not try to to make it gender neutral, even though that might be a little offensive for the women in the room, that you're called a son. The point in Paul using this language is that, just as Paul said earlier, and there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, female or male, all are one in Christ. Paul is saying, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek, a slave or a free, a male or a female, Son, meaning full status, full benefits, 
full financial inheritance, that's yours. So women, you're sons of God in this sense. Full status and relationship and heirs of the estate. This is a radical claim that Paul's making in this moment. You are all sons of God and you receive adoption, not by your own effort or merit or your work, but by grace. So secondly, what does it mean to be a son? Paul says that you're a son, and if you're a son, then you're an heir through God. And, and because I think the concept of an heir in our context versus Paul's context hasn't changed as much as the concept of sonship in our context versus the Greco-Roman context, I want to talk a little bit more about what sonship means. This is how some translations record chapter 4, verse 5. So that we might receive adoption to sonship. That might be a little strange hearing what that means, and especially in our culture that is increasingly confused on sex and gender and what it means to be male or a female. Right? If you're a father of a son, you might be taught that the only difference in your son versus your daughter is reproductive organs. But in Paul's time in the ancient world, sonship was tied into family identity, status, estate, responsibility, and vocation. Meaning, what the father did, the son would follow. Being a son meant you followed in your father's footsteps, especially in regard to work and your job. Now, that's pretty clear in our culture, in our context, that's very different, right? Because your dad is an engineer at Boeing, that does not mean that you have to be an engineer at Boeing. Right? My dad was an engineer at Boeing. I didn't have the cultural expectation or the family expectation that that's what I was going to do like I had no other choice. Right? And you know, if your dad was a photographer or a teacher or a lawyer, you didn't have to follow in his footsteps. Right? We live in a culture that's much more individualistic and self-chosen. But in Paul, in the Greco-Roman time, your father was a baker, you would be a baker. Your father was a fisherman, you'd be a fisherman. Your father was a carpenter, you would be a carpenter. And this is important as we think through what it means to be called a son of God. Is, for example, when Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I don't think in this moment Jesus is making a comment on how you become a Christian. Rather, he's saying that God, the Father, is the ultimate peacemaker. He is the supreme peacemaker. So when you are a peacemaker, you are showing yourself to be his son. Does that make sense? You're, you're showing who your true father is. So being a son of God means not only have you been greatly loved by God, it means that you have been reborn, not by your own effort or by God's will, it, or your will. It means not only have you received the spirit of the son that's been sent into your heart, you have new access and intimacy and relationship with God. He's your father, right? Wrath has been poured out on Jesus. Therefore, there's no longer fear or condemnation, but love. Being a son also means that you follow the father. You obey the father. You imitate him. You act like him. You reflect his character and love. It means that the vocation and mission of your life is to match the vocation and mission of his. Your mission becomes his mission. You're supposed to seek his glory. Does that make sense? That's, what, that's all that sonship means. And it means that your heart is no longer set on obeying what you want and enslaved to the flesh and elementary principles, but your heart is set on obeying your father. 
In fact, in multiple places throughout the Bible, obedience is the marker that you are a true child of God. Hear what 1 John 3, 9 through 10 says. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Here, 1 John 5, 1 through 3. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of him. And everyone who loves the father also loves the child born of him. This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and we obey his commands. For this is what the love of God is, love for God is, to keep his commandments. And his commands are not a burden. That's what it means to be a son of God. So when Paul says you are no longer slaves but sons, he means that you are no longer a minor heir with no rights to the inheritance. You are no longer forced to obey the elementary things of the world. You're no longer a slave to sin and self. You are a son New status, new privileges, new relationship, new spirit, new calling, new mission. And it's from this status, it's from this relationship that you obey. You don't obey for status or for acceptance, you work from it. This is what Paul is arguing. One of my favorite things to do with my daughters is go to the park with them. And and often when I'm at the park, there's a lot of other kids running around, and there's parents, and sometimes it's badness. But when I call out, hey, stop doing that, there's one person on the playground that I expect to hear me and obey. It's not all the other kids. And I don't have a relationship with them. I'm not their father. It's my daughter, Addison, right? When I call to her, I expect her to come to me and obey me because she is my daughter. She bears my name. She reflects my image. I- I've named her. And I want her to obey me because she, out of love and thankfulness and gratitude and the love that I give to her. And Paul is saying that children of God think about God like that as sons, children. God is not this slave master. He is our new father. We have intimacy with him, and it's out of that that we obey. In a very real sense, this, this implication is, Stop trying to work for his acceptance. You already have it. Stop trying to work for your righteousness. It's been given to you in Christ, and you obey from that. Amen? Amen. Now, if this is what being a son or a child of God means, that we've been adopted, we're no longer slaves, but we're sons, I think it's helpful for us to examine how we might resist this truth. This is why we're looking at that third question in our handout. How do we naturally resist what the text says and means? We do this because we want to remain humble. And we do this because we know that we're not the heroes of the Bible. Jesus is. We don't want to become arrogant or boast that this is not for me, Paul. This warning, this rebuke, this reminder that Paul gave to the Galatians is not for me. I, I live out of this perfectly. So let's, let's think about how we might resist this. And as I was praying over this passage and asking for the Spirit to guide me, and I was examining my own heart in light of what it says in this word, I think we can naturally resist the truth in thinking about how we become a son. When we hear and we see the realities that are in this scripture that it's God who is the one who is the author and the initiator, 
It's God is the one who sent the Son and sent the Spirit and were made heirs through Him. We can't take any credit for that. And that kind of takes all power and negotiating power out of our hands, doesn't it? We're like, if we had a little bit of credit in our adoption and our salvation, suddenly we bring a little bit more to the negotiation, don't we? But if it's all by him, we owe him everything, don't we? We're completely dependent on him for everything. So we want to take a little bit of control and credit. And we lose this dependency. We fall into pride and self-dependence. And we resist this truth by the way that we view God as we view our earthly father. If we are totally dependent upon God for salvation and redemption and forgiveness and adoption, then that same dependency that we start with, how we cry, Abba, Father, is the same dependency we must continue throughout our Christian development. We never grow out of our need for our heavenly Father. And I think that we are prone to forget this. We are prone to view our heavenly Father as our earthly fathers. Yeah, I needed them when I was younger. I, I had to obey them when I was younger. But then I moved out of the house. I became a man. I got my own will. I'm self-dependent and self-governing. Right? It'd be weird, right? I walk into an ice cream shop. I, I, I want to get a triple scoop. And the, the clerk looks at me and says, did your dad say you could do that? <laughs> Listen, man, I'm a grown man. I want three scoops of ice cream. I get three scoops of ice cream. Don't, don't we do that with God? Yeah, God, I needed you when I was a babe, but I got this. What does your prayer life right now reflect about the way you view God? Do you view God maybe like you view your earthly father as you're out of the house? Maybe he's more like a counselor to you. You only talk with him when you need something. Or do you view God as everything? I'm dependent upon him for everything. I don't have a life apart from him. Maybe we view God the Father as we had our fathers who were abusive. We look at God with deep bitterness and fear. Maybe we think that his commands are burdensome and bad. Or maybe we view God like, and, and we learn these things just like we do when we're kids with our fathers. We become pros at lawyering and justifying our disobedience. It is so quickly and we so easily segregate God and distance ourselves from dependence upon him and say things and functionally live like, yeah, he has authority and power and control over my eternal destiny, but he doesn't really have any effect or power or authority on my present life. And we might not say those words, but functionally that's how we live, isn't it? In our natural selves, we don't want our father to be the sovereign king, the provider, the creator. We want to know, I want to spend my nights how I want them. God will give you 2% of my time. I got the 98%. Don't we resist these realities in this way? Although we naturally resist this text in, in many ways and others, although we're prone to unbelief and we want credit and control, we... We distance ourselves, we grow self-dependent. 
We must come back to Jesus and look at how he is the hero, how he accomplished it. That's what we're getting to question four. How is Jesus the hero? We look at Jesus as our hero, as our friend, who was not only called the Son of God, but lived perfectly and faithfully as the Son of God. Jesus said, without any doubt, without any pride, without any, he wasn't lying. Father, I have accomplished all that you've made me to do. Perfectly obedient. Jesus didn't even speak on his own authority. He spoke what the Father told him to say and to speak. See that amount of self-giving and dependence upon the Father? Jesus said in John 5, 19 through 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Remember how we talked about sonship is tied to vocation? What he sees the Father doing, he does. That's, that's what Jesus did. The Father does, the Son does likewise. And even when their wills possibly could have conflicted, in a great time of distress, he's praying in the garden. He's about to be betrayed. He's about to be abandoned and nailed to a cross. He prays, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, but as you will. Not my will be done, but your will be done. And what was this cup? What was this work that the Father had given him? What was the will of the Father? to be sent to earth, to be born of a woman, to be born under the law, to redeem those who were under the curse of the law. That was the will of the Father. That's what Jesus has accomplished. The Father sent Jesus to become a curse in our place. And although we were born in slavery, although we were living in slavery, we were under prison, under a guardian. We had a heavy burden that was put upon us that we could not carry on our own. There was no hope. The law was crushing us. God sent his son to take that burden of the law, to become a curse. Jesus left freedom and status and honor at his rightful place at the Father's hand. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't, he didn't take advantage of that status. He made himself nothing. Jesus became a slave so that you could be a son. And you were bought out of slavery, not with mere gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, sent his only Son so that not by your faithfulness or your work, not by your worthiness or your unworthiness, not by your credit or your merit, but only by faith you could be adopted into his family. And even once you become a child of God, and even as we naturally rebel and resist and fall into sin, and the, the flesh wins, and we rebel, and we prove our and we, we are living as if we are not sons. The righteousness and the beauty of the gospel is that not only is our sin and our rebellion taken away from, but the righteousness, the perfection that Jesus has is imputed to us. It's given to us freely, meaning the way that the Father looks at the Son is the way he looks at you. perfect acceptance, love, because of Christ. This is how Christ has accomplished our sonship, and he not only accomplishes it, but he shows us what it means to live as a son. And as we think about this and behold the gospel and see how Jesus is the hero, this is how we live of, of, out of the identity that he's accomplished. This is how it empowers us to, to obey. 
In other words, the way that we change and we grow and become like Christ is to behold him more deeply, to ask the spirit to make the glorious truths of the gospel more real to our hearts so that we actually live as if we believe them. We apply them. They're, they're working their way from the inside out. You guys still with me? So this is what we should do when we rebel and our flesh wins and we choose death instead of life. We confess, Father, I am no longer a slave. I don't want to live like a slave. Father, I am weak and I lack faith and I struggle with unbelief. This is not who you made me to be. This was the self that was crucified on the cross. This was the sin that caused me to be cursed and have wrath upon me. But Father, help me become more like you. Help me to become who you've made me to be. Show me more deeply the beauty of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Let the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ shine into my heart. Help me behold the glory of Jesus to be transformed into his image from one degree of glory to the next. This comes from the Spirit who has been set into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, help me to live out of who you made me to be. That's how we pray. That's how we cry. That's how we sing. So friends, are you living as a slave or as a son? Teach yourself to ask this question. Am I living like a slave or a son? Ask this question of your heart. Do you view God as a cruel slave master that you must obey out of duty or a loving father who wants what's best for you. His commands are not a burden. Do you live as a slave still uh, in fear or in pride or enslaved to the elementary principles of the world and you're in rebellion and you only obey when you feel like you have to or are you living like a son meditating on the realities that God is your Abba Are you living as a slave or as a son? Slaves obey because they feel like they have to. Sons obey because they want to. Let us pray for those in this room who are not children of God, that by God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he might grant them faith and repentance. And let us pray for ourselves to be and grow in the church and the people, the sons and daughters receiving our sonship, growing as who we are to connect the truths of what Christ has already accomplished with our daily living by the power of the Spirit and through prayer. Let us grow as imitators of God and witnesses of Jesus, obedient to our Abba, because we are no longer slaves. We are sons, and if sons, then heirs through God. Amen? Let's pray.